0: Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We're a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Ontario, and we're on a mission to reach people far from God and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. Hey, this week we're in week two of a message series by Mark Clark of Village Church, and it's uh, the series is called The Problem of Jesus. And today we're going to be talking about the greatest commandment, love. Is there anything better we could be talking about today? I'm not sure there is. And so I hope this message is helpful for you. We'd love to connect with you. If, uh, this podcast... The ministry of Pathway Church is helping you out and helping you grow in your faith. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email, info at pathwaylife.com. Go to our website or YouTube channel. We'd love to connect with you. And now part two of the problem of Jesus.
1: Hey everybody, Pastor Mark Clark here. So glad that you are part of this series that we're doing, The Problem of Jesus. Today, we're going to be going through the problem of loving God, which is something that sounds really cliche, but it's oftentimes something we never thought of. So if you've got a Bible, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Um, something very interesting happens in this verse. In verse 57, they're going along the road and someone says um, to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds of the air has nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let that sit as backdrop to what we're talking about today. Let me start this way. If your house caught on fire, what would you take with you? Your wedding pictures, maybe the watch your grandfather gave you, your kids, hopefully. Uh, I remember years ago, uh, the, the fire I accidentally set to my uh, own kitchen. I wasn't exactly a cook, you know, when I was uh, 18 years old. And I I thought the way to cook Kraft dinner, and this is a true story. I got a bowl. My family wasn't around. And I took the, the box of Kraft dinner and just poured dry noodles into a bowl. I put it in the microwave, set the microwave for nine minutes, then went down and had a shower. Yeah, that's what I thought would produce craft dinner. <laughs> anyway, about five minutes into the shower, my fire alarm goes off in my house. I run up the stairs and see my entire kitchen on fire, smoke everywhere. And I ran outside to escape the flames. And of course, what was the thing that rose to top priority? What was I going to bring? I brought my towel, of course, because I didn't want to stand outside naked. See, there are certain moments in life when priorities rise to the top. Every secondary thing fades into the background and just one thing remains. When the doctor gives you that diagnosis, you hear that a family member might be in danger. All of the other problems in the world seem small and insignificant. And our attention singularly focuses. This is what is happening when Jesus tells us about the most important thing we need to know. What has been called the great commandment, right? A guy comes to Jesus at one particular part in his ministry and says, which commandment is the most important of all? And when someone asks that question, we should all be leaning in at that point, paying attention to whatever Jesus is going to say. Pens out, quieting the barking dog, ready to make it the focus of our life. And Jesus answers profound, especially in its application. Here's what he says. Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. That's Mark chapter 12. Now, listen, there were 600 laws in the Bible This scribe is saying to Jesus, sum them all up and give me the most important one. Give me the one verse, the one that I'm going to run out of the the burning house with. That's a lot of pressure. If someone came to me as a pastor after a church service, instead of the 66 books in the Bible, with all the thousands of verses and concepts and commands, sum it all up for me in one verse. What's the most important thing? I don't know what I'd actually say to that person. I'd probably go, oh, look, a birdie, and then run away. I'd just be confused. Jesus does this without even thinking about it. Love God with your whole self. So, contrary to what one might think, the topic of loving God is one of the most neglected ideas in modern Christianity. In my entire library, among the hundreds of books I have, and all the books owned by my church staff, I actually went around and found very few books that explore with any depth the priority of loving God, despite being the key focus of Jesus' teachings. Think about how many sermons you've heard on this little is said about this in modern christian conversation i asked my twitter followers to chime in about this on i said what are the books that have had profound impact on you on actually loving god not loving people not loving god that they had read and they'd enjoyed. And surprisingly, I found the most common responses were books written hundreds of years ago. The most popular was a guy named Thomas Vincent in 1600s wrote a book called The True Christian's Love to the Unseen Christ. I found it so interesting uh, that I had to reach back hundreds of years to find a worthy treatise on this topic. This is my small attempt to write that wrong, or at least to draw your attention to a topic that Jesus found to be of ultimate importance. Now, It's profound, it's deep, it's life-changing in ways we could never have imagined. So what does it really mean, loving God? It first means that the priority of our lives isn't our religious practices, but something inside us, something before that, something we possess at the level of heart and soul. It begins where our affections lie. Not necessarily where our rational mind lies. The center of all physical and spiritual life is our heart, Your yourself. It's what you value. It's what you do with your life. It's the fountain and seat of your emotions, thoughts, dreams, passions, desires, appetites, purposes, endeavors. It's what your heart Your soul is what drives and shapes your will and your character. So Jesus is saying everything important and definitive about you needs to be centered around God rather than anything else, including yourself. Love God. Love uh, the very focus of your heart and soul. Your relationship to God must be more than a belief. It has to be a love affair. Remember when you you started dating your spouse? I I, I used to write poems for Erin, right? I I even wrote a few screenplays and they dedicated them to her. I wrote songs about her. I called her at night. I drove to see her. I thought about her constantly. We'd fall asleep on the phone every night chatting. See, that's what you do with someone you love. And that is a taste of what it means to know God. So, so, So what's so scandalous about the command of Jesus to love God? Well, it's not sentimentalism. It's that human beings are hardwired to love, even if that love proves to be self-destructive. See, see, what's scandalous is that Jesus is saying that you're already wired to love stuff. In the garden, God wired you to love things ultimately with your whole heart. Now Jesus is saying, I want you to change that thing because you already are doing it with things that you see in front of you, money or relationships or beauty or whatever it is. He's raising a challenge of what, to do you already love with all your heart soul mind strength can you transfer that affection to god instead are you willing to make that thing you currently love above all else secondary right this was adam and eve in the garden i'm going to wire you to love something now the question is are you going to want to become like gods versus knowing who you are and loving what god has given you see we could experience unending joy pleasure Purpose, meaning in work, love, art, sex, play, marriage, raising kids, endless discovery. That's what the human experience was going to be, Adam and Eve in the garden. But humankind chose to misdirect that love. Paul says in Romans 1, their foolish hearts were darkened. We exchanged the joy of God for the fruit. For created things. For temporal Material, limited things. We take something infinite and and we trade it out for something finite, something God has made and we try to make it satisfy us so much so that our infinite longing never gets satisfied unless we turn it to Him. That's why Jesus is saying it because it's the best thing for us. Our problem is we take a good thing, we make it a God thing. The finite God replacements range from the familiar God money sex power to the more insidious and and hidden ones things like family our comfort even religion itself again anything can become a replacement for god called idols we think those are bad things but they aren't they can be good things too that we make into definitive things so take two modern ones comfort and family from the story i just read you Jesus looks at the, the culture he's in, he's like, birds of the air have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. You want to come follow me? See, see, I confess, I've never been without a home. A roof over my head, clothes in my closet, or a pile on the floor, right? Sorry, Aaron, that's my wife. Uh, food, water, I've never been without these things. These are things I depend on and take for granted. More than that, these are things, listen, that I love. A willingness to give up those comforts, that ease is central to what it means to follow Jesus. That's what he's trying to say. In our culture today, this means we need to be willing to walk away from extravagance and safety to follow Jesus where he leads us. And this is much harder than we'd like to think it is. See, see where I live, there's this subtle elitism around possessions. People give off the vibe that if you don't own a house... Or drive an Escalade, or dress in the finest clothes, you aren't worthy of leaning into and respecting. I remember a conversation my wife and I had with someone. We were just starting our church, so we were just renting these homes, and we were like, they were like, hey, what home do you own? We're like, oh, we rent, and they're like, oh, and they just walked away from us. We're like, what is going on here? Apparently, as renters, we weren't worth the investment of time and energy. A snobbish focus on possessions as status symbols is one of the inevitable outcomes when a human soul doesn't love God more than reputation and wealth. We fall for the love of comfort and ease, the safety, the status that possessions provide. But do we love those things too much? They become ultimate things. Listen, could you even hear God right now if he called you to something else? Like like through all of your stuff, Your comfort, you're investing in mortgage, your kids attend a good school, you have a good friend group. If God looked to you like He did with Abraham and said, I'm going to call you to leave, go to a place you've never been to, if you're obedient, I'll meet you there. Could you actually even hear him right now? See, true discipleship is understanding that believing in Jesus isn't just about whether we're going to heaven when we die, but about who we are in the process of becoming for all eternity. And that means Jesus cares about what we care about. And he wants to change what we love starting right now in this life. A proper relationship with money is a good thing, for instance. Jesus says you can't serve both God and money. In saying that, One must worship either money or God. Jesus wasn't giving much room for people to compromise. We all want to be people, listen, who serve both. I think I can serve both God and money. Jesus goes, you can't. The heart will attach itself to one or the other. So A.W. Tozer, years ago, speaking directly about this modern idol of money, he said uh, this, the modern Christian person is the person of pseudo-faith and They will fight for their verbal creed but refuse to allow themselves to get into a predicament where their future must depend upon that creed being true. That person always provides himself with secondary ways of escape so he will have a way out if the roof caves in. That tends to be what we do. But then Tozer concluded this. What we need very badly these days is a company of Christians who are prepared to trust God as completely now as they know they must do at the last day. Think about that in your own life. In other words, as Christians, we cannot simply accept the status quo. We must have our hearts and imaginations infused with the kingdom of God and turn a critical eye to the values and the loves and the agendas of our modern world, including the way our world worships, money and comfort and family. Like we're never embrace the ethic of the alternative kingdom unless we cease to be comfortable in this world. The practicing Christian in that way, as one writer has said, should look like a Martian. He or she will never feel at home in the commodity kingdom. If the Christian does feel at home here, something is drastically wrong. Uh, A few years ago, I was talking to a guy in our church. He was a husband and a father who's doing quite well in his business. And one super early morning, he was awakened by God at two o'clock, felt led to go down to his garage and felt God telling him he's got to sell all he's got, take the kids out of school, go to the airport and serve people in this particular third world country. And so he did. He got on, went for a trip, served them for six months to a year, came back, visas ran out, he came back and he, every time he went to people that he loved, the people who were closest to him, what do you think they said? They said, don't do it. Unanimously, his family and friends were against it. You know this whole thing's really irresponsible. You've got kids in school. You've got a mortgage. You've got a career. You don't walk away from all of that. These people heard it all. The truth is that our modern Christianity no longer has a category for this kind of obedience. This complete detachment from stuff. We consider it unwise, reckless. And here's Jesus going, no, it's actually what you have to do. Because that means you love God more than more than the comfort and ease. The bumper stickers in Christian bookstores say things like, the safest place to be is the center of the will of God. But that's not the biblical story. Most often the center of the will of God is a dangerous place to be. Read the life of the Apostle Paul, who is right in the center of God's will and was still beaten near to death, shipwrecked, in prison. Go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Read about the life of Joseph, Job, Jesus himself. God rarely offers us security in the sense that we think he should. He rarely gives us the kind of security that we want. What Christianity says is you are, of course, secure in Christ. And the Bible tells that. No matter what happens to you in this world, you are secure. Ephesians chapter 4, you are sealed for the day of redemption. But there is a world of difference between being secure and being safe. In Christ, God promises us security. He does not promise us safety. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, was, uh, I had to jump on a plane and go to Australia. And I don't love flying. And so there was like this, I had to fly over 16 hours of straight water from Vancouver to Australia. And I looked at my church that day as I was preaching and I said, you know i could die in this plane tonight there's nothing about the gospel the prosperity gospel is wrong i might die tonight i don't actually know the gospel doesn't tell me i'm gonna not die it tells me that i'm safe and dying see there's a world of difference between those two messages as we talked about in one of the other messages in this series see one promises me comfort and ease The other promise is God's presence and a secure future, but no guarantee I'll avoid crashing and dying in this life. See, this is what Jesus is pushing back against. So there's a second and third hidden idol um, under the surface, and it's seen in this story in Luke chapter 9, the God of family, the God of ease and comfort, and making sure that we don't actually waste our life. Consider the man's response to Jesus seems like a rational request leave the dead to bury their own dead he says but but as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of god yet another man piped in said i call you lord let me first say farewell to those at my home jesus responds and goes he who puts his hand in the plow is not fit for the kingdom of god what's going on if you want to follow me he says i've got to be more important than your own family it's easy to nod and affirm that idea right seems rational and reasonable from the person's perspective, it's like, hey, I want family over ministry. We say yes and amen. Family before work. Yes. We're told this all the time. But we also need to be wary. When it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Remember in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, Boromir approaches Frodo and he ponders you know, what he should do next with the ring. And Boromir says, are you sure that you do not suffer needlessly I wish to help you. You need counsel in your hard choice. Will you not take my counsel? And Frodo goes, I think I know already what counsel you would give. And it would seem like wisdom, but for the warning of my heart. Warning, Boromir says, what what warning? And then he says, against the way that seems easier. See, modern Christianity will give a nod to the idea that God must be first, but it sometimes offers us the way of Boromir, a path that is easier and more reasonable. However, those who are paying attention to the ways of Jesus, who have his warning in their hearts, know that it is precisely the subtle, rational realities of idols that make them seem so good, and thus they're insidious to our souls See, there's a number of reasons why the God of family is so dangerous. How often is it that people may be interested in Jesus, but out of allegiance to the worldview of their families that they were born from, they don't even entertain the idea of becoming a Christian. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're part of a family, a religious heritage, uh, or an irreligious one, an atheist, an agnostic, a new age, whatever, and you can't dream of denying your own blood. You can't dream of facing the rejection of those you love because you choose Jesus. And maybe that's you. We planted Village uh, in 2010. And uh, for about a year beforehand, we gathered with 16 people in my house before we launched. And uh, all throughout the planning process, my stepdad was sick. He's back in Toronto. And, and three of the 16 people who planted Village Church in that nine-month period where we were all gathering saw their parents die during that stage. Like my dad died the morning of our second service as a church. I got a phone call from my mom that he passed away. Two hours later, I had to be up preaching. But here's the thing. I didn't call in sick or ask someone else to preach for me. I preached about Jesus being the hero of the Bible. To 110 people in a school gym and then i jumped on a plane and flew to toronto to plan and lead my dad's funeral i didn't throw in the towel in the face of my pain nor did any of the others who lost parents during that launching period one to a car accident one to a terrible brain tumor see facing the idol of family in another context jesus says You have to hate your mother and father to be my disciples. He doesn't mean, of course, hate in terms of how we often use the word. We don't have to actively dislike our family. Jesus, however, means that we should love them less. This still confounds us because family is so important to so many of us. We wonder why God would want us to be cautious about loving something good, something he's created, but this call is for our own good. Jesus knows what is best for us long-term. He knows if we look to our parents, our spouse, our kids to find happiness, we will ultimately be unhappy. Man, I got three daughters. I want them to love me, of course. But I want them to love Jesus and the gospel more than me. I love what Pastor John Piper writes. Uh, He tells the story of putting his daughter to bed after an occurrence had happened in their town where a bridge collapsed and some people had died. And he's putting his daughter, Talitha, to sleep. And he says this, he says, Talitha is sleeping now, but one day she will die. I teach her this. I will not always be there to bless her. But Jesus is alive and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will be with her because she trusts him and she will make it through the river. See, that makes me pause. At some point, hopefully, long after I'm gone, my kids will die. Have you ever thought about that? Your kids! And they will face their own judgment. Did you make them treasure Jesus Christ above everything else? They won't be saved because I was a pastor or through our faith as their parents or grandparents or whatever. So our job is to get them to hold on to Jesus, to love him more than they love us. That's what Jesus is getting at when he calls the world to move its heart off family and onto him instead, as crazy as it sounds. It's a similar danger to everyone who has a good marriage. Right? I once heard a preacher explain it this way. If a spouse is your functional savior in life, the center of your universe, who determines your happiness, your sense of direction, your self-worth, who is going to pick you up off the ground when you don't feel like moving on at all? When you bury them one day. Who will save you then when you're dying of a broken heart? There'll be no one there to give you joy. And that's why you have to make your only Savior, the God who will never die. Uh, Again, John Piper years ago was standing in front of 40,000 students and preached a sermon called Don't Waste Your Life. And there are many college students online today who say it was the most profound sermon they ever heard. He gives at one point the image of a couple women that were missionaries sent out from their church that died in a car accident just before he had given the sermon he looked out at this audience of 40,000 college students and he says, the brakes gave way over a cliff. These women went and they were dead instantly. And I asked the people in my church, Piper said, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places in the world. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, they fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy? He says. The crowd, all these kids, go watch the video, sit in silence. And Piper looks and he says, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. Consider the story from the February 1998 Reader's Digest. A couple took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment, Piper said. Look, Lord, see my shells. This, he said, is a tragedy. This is what Jesus is getting at. Like, man, sometimes our worst enemy, the person who keeps us from listening to and following God, is the person who loves us the most because they don't want to see us challenged, they don't want to see us shaken. They don't want to see us in danger. Now, notice, Jesus is doing this because it's the best thing for us. This is what Thomas Chalmers, way back in the day, a couple hundred years ago, he was a Scottish preacher, he called the expulsive power of a new affection. Here's what he means. See, how do we do what Jesus is asking us to do? How do we love God above everything else? It's hard, practically. For some of you watching this, your highest priority is beauty. And you pay out to keep beating it. For others, it's success. It's, it's work. It's, it's, and you'll sacrifice family and personal health to feed your desire to succeed and get ahead. That's the nature of the human heart. So, so how are you and I going to live free and clear of those idols and avoid their negative impact on us? It's by loving God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's giving us the practical solution. St. Augustine once said, we are what we love and therein lies the key to understanding the heart. We can't just tell ourselves not to love these idols. It's great. Oh, pastor, you got me on a sermon. I'm done worshiping money. No, no. We can't just stop lusting, being greedy, gossiping, whatever desire rules over your life. I've watched the church approach our culture and demand that they behave this way versus that way for long enough to know it doesn't work. We can't change by sheer mental determination. Our habits and flaws don't just disappear because we tell them to. Just ask a drug addict. It all comes down to what we love and how we love it. So here's what Chalmers says. He asks, how is it even possible for us to hate the things of the world when in many ways they're so satisfying? And he says that it's rare for any of our tastes to just disappear by mere force of reasoning or determination. However, he says, we're not without hope. What cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed, he says. The heart is such that the only way to dispossess it of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. The youth ceases to idolize pleasure, but it is only because the idol of wealth has become stronger. The love of money ceases to have mastery over the citizen because they're drawn into the world of politics, so now they're lorded over by a love of power. The way to disengage the heart from the love of one great object is to fasten it to another. It's not about exposing the worthlessness of the old affection but exposing the worth and excellency of the new one. It takes more than just saying or believing your idols are destructive. It's about coming to believe that God is better. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The heart needs to fasten itself to something it loves more than the sin. You need to love Jesus more than you love the sin. That's the only way you're gonna stop all of those habits and proclivities that are destroying your life. Something that is better than that sin, more satisfying, That's the only way. That's why Jesus says you got to love God more than anything else. I started smoking when I was in eighth grade. The government put all like pictures saying, don't smoke, bleeding brains, rotting teeth. Didn't work. I'd just walk up and go, give me two bleeding brains and a rotting teeth and smoke, 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 smoke. What was the only way I ever stopped smoking? I met my wife. She didn't like smoking. I started to love her more than I loved smoking. And by the time I was 23, I actually quit. See, you can't just tear down idols. You have to replace them with something you love more. Not run away from something, but towards something that is better. That's the only way to be truly free. There is no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of the heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. That's the point. So let's let's land this thing with one level deeper. How is it possible to come to love God in this way? To taste and see that the Lord is good. Above all things in the world, as the Bible says. First, we must come to see God as our ultimate treasure. Now that might sound obvious, but it's anything but. Here's the subtle challenge we face. The call is... Not to love him because of the things he produces in our lives. Otherwise, this is what we do. We relate to God because we want this blessing, health, security. Get me out of this financial trouble. Or just because every good and perfect gift is from him and we want all the perfect gifts. So we want to get that. But that's not what true follower of Jesus does. That's not even what the true follower of Jesus wants above all. The greatest gift we get is God himself. Listen to what First Peter says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And then he explains why he did that. The purpose of that suffering, that he might bring us to God. Notice Peter doesn't say the greatest gift we get is going to heaven when we die or seeing our loved ones again or peace in the face of anxiety or slaying the giants of fear and debt in our life. But we get God. We get the greatest treasure in the universe. And in this way, as one writer has said, the gospel is not a way to get people into heaven. It's a way to get people to God. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and the physical pleasures that you ever tasted with no human conflict, no natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven? even if God was not there? That's the question. In other words, do you really see and honestly feel the worth of God as an end in and of himself? As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. That's the picture the the writer of the Psalms talk about. The writer's soul doesn't pant for God's stuff. It doesn't pant for the result of knowing him, but for him as an end in himself. My soul thirsts for God, the living God, he says. This is the goal of life. You ever wondered why Satan isn't saved? He knows truth. He knows the resurrection happened. He knows God died on a cross to deliver it. He knows all of that, but it doesn't save him. Why? Because he doesn't treasure it above every other thing in the universe. Let me leave you with a crazy verse. I was preaching through 1 Corinthians uh, and right at the end of it, in the last two verses, the apostle Paul says something that changed my whole perspective. He says, "If anyone has no love for the Lord, First Corinthians 16:22, let him be accursed." You know what he's saying? He doesn't say, "Hey, if you, you, cursing or going uh, to a Christless eternity happens when you don't have faith in Jesus." Of course, that's true. But he says in the text, "It's the person who has no love for Jesus." Think about that. See, this is why Jesus calls us to love God with our whole self because in the end, this is what saves us. Jonathan Edwards years ago said that love is the central factor to saving faith. So the question for you and me is not just do we believe God? Do we have cognitive assent? One writer put it this way. I'll leave you with this picture. We often talk about faith as like, sitting on a chair you know do you have faith in jesus will you sit on the chair the question though is more than that it's do you love the chair do you like in whole, do you treasure the chair above every other truth in the universe see satan knows things about god but they don't save him because he doesn't trust to it he doesn't love god above everything else the world has to offer and the reason god tells us to do this is not because he's narcissistic Love me above everything else. It's because it's the best thing for us. It's the way we were wired. And so, Father, I pray that this great command of Jesus to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength as the core command that we would see it as the thing we got to run out of the burning house with. We would see it as the main priority in our life that We wouldn't just be people who behave in a certain way, but we would recognize that that behavior is downstream. It's a result of of shaping our very affections around you first, and then you start to change what we want to do, what we take joy in. Do that work among us as we watch this, as we listen to this. Let us actually make the change of loving things. Get our hearts off those things to loving you above all things this is the challenge you put in front of us and let us have the courage to actually follow it. In Jesus' great name we pray, amen.
0: Well, Thanks for joining us today. I hope that message was helpful for you. We are so pleased as a church to be able to connect with folks here in our local neighborhood and around the world. And we continue to do so using this podcast, our website, our YouTube channel, and our local ministry. If you'd like to support our church financially, if you'd like to become a partner with us, you can go ahead and go to our website, PathwayLife.com, and you can find out how to give and support this ministry there. If you need resources or would like to connect with us, once again, reach out to us using our website or our YouTube page, and we would love to connect with you. So, until next time... Have a fantastic week, and we'll see you here once again on the Pathway Church Podcast.